You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of foreign correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, Derek Scally in Berlin on the aftermath and political fallout from the truck attack on the Christmas market, and Mark Weiss on the reaction in Israel to Donald Trump's nomination of controversial, deeply conservative lawyer as the new US ambassador to Israel. And I'll be reporting on the threat to Alaska's polar bears from uncontrolled global warming. You can subscribe to the full range of Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher. The drug attack on the Berlin Christmas market by the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church, in which 12 died, has long been predicted. It seemed, after the Paris, Brussels, Nice attacks, that Germany would inevitably be next. But that reality, and the understanding that most people have that little can be done to prevent it, does not make Angela Merkel's position any easier, does it, Derek? No, I mean, Angela Merkel is a, a, a leader on the defensive. Um, she's She was already torn um, as a, she's a, a stateswoman, the last of her generation standing on the European and international stage. And faced with the refugee crisis, she said, we have to do our share, we have to lift our share of the burden. That was always unpopular at home. Um, but she says that we can manage this optimism has vanished in recent months, faced with a, uh, an uncertain security situation and a lot of unwilling e- re- uh, neighbours. Angela Merkel has sort of shifted to the right and her conservatives have forced her to shift to the right, uh, acknowledging that there is a, a, an uncertain security situation because of these uh, refugees and asylum seekers. And if they didn't do this, the far right in Germany alternative for Deutschland would scoop up votes next year. So the stateswoman Angela Merkel has had to pivot towards the politicians seeking re-election, Angela Merkel. Uh, That was two weeks ago. And after uh, what we saw in Berlin on Monday night, there'll be pressure on her to become even more of an outspoken critic of uh, asylum seekers of uh, or come out in favour of sort of a hard law and order Merkel cracking down on public insecurity in the hope of um, clawing back some support among her core voters. There does seem to be a lot of talk about how, you know, you're going to have to change your line, you're going to have to toughen up. But what are people specifically expecting her to do? I think they just want uh, the sense that... uh, any sense of it, it, control is the problem in Germany. Germans love control and losing control is pretty much the worst thing you can do. And Angela Merkel has had to admit that, yes, there was a, a an extraordinary situation last year and 890,000 people came into our country, perhaps even more. And we may or may not know where they all are and we may or may not know what they all have planned. And her conservatives and um, many other people in her party have said, this is a disaster situation. If we can't maintain control of our borders, we cannot guarantee public security. And if you cannot guarantee public security in Germany, you aren't long for this world. And that is the dilemma she's facing. It's not clear at all what she can do. Um, As you said in your introduction, uh, German authorities have long expected a serious attack. Germany has had many lucky escapes and some minor scrapes in international comparison. This is the largest they've had so far. And there's always been a fear in Germany that if something like this happened, a slightly irrational side to the German person, personality would sort of kick in and suddenly there would be we'd swing drastically from sort of the welcome culture of last year to a all refugees are a potential threat public debate. Now, Merkel and, I have to be say, the German media have been very calm since yesterday, uh, anxious not to over-egg things, not to chase 
every passing rumor. Um, but uh, as with insecurity and uh, uncertainty over just who was behind the attack, uh, there would be pressure on her to show that yes, I am in control. I am your I am your chancellor, and that's where she's that's her Achilles heel, and that's where the far right are planning to attack. And of course, the nightmare scenario for her is that it was precisely one of those who came in. Uh, across the border uh, in in the course of the last year, year and a half, uh, the one million, uh, that if it was one of those as opposed to a homegrown uh, terrorist, uh, she, she has bigger, much bigger problems. Indeed, she, um, with so much uncertainty over who did it, um, it's almost uh, she's damned if she does and damned if she doesn't. She's damned if, if a perpetrator is caught quickly, um, because that will, if it is an asylum seeker, um, this would reflect very poorly on her, and the AFD far right would uh, be cheering that, yes, their concerns about uh, the security situation of asylum seekers were justified and not a xenophobic comment, as they've been accused of. Uh, if this drags on and uh, no perpetrator is found, but the court of public opinion is so rattled by this, many people would just assume it was an asylum seeker. And there have been some terrible cases in Germany. There was the uh, Cologne attacks of almost a year ago in New Year's Eve. Uh, but even recently, there's been a 12-year-old tried to blow up a Christmas market in Ludwigshafen in the southwest of Germany. And we've had uh, an Afghan man who is accused of uh, raping and murdering a 19-year-old German woman. So people were already rattled. People were already primed, um, expecting the worst. But now that it has happened, it almost seems even worse. It's a, a very a grey and bleak time here in Germany. And there's a time frame, particularly uh, for elections this year, which she must be acutely aware of. What, 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 what is it? Uh, at what stage did the elections start? The elections start earlier than you might think. Um, after Christmas, they're really kicking in uh, already because there are state elections coming in the spring, and there's a key election in uh, northwest uh, North Rhine-Westphalia in western Germany. That's home to one in five Germans and has a huge number of. Uh, non-nationals and because of its size a huge number of asylum seekers and refugees so the AFD is hoping to strong, score very strongly there and the CDU has always been traditionally weak in this state but uh, once that election kicks in we're basically into the election cycle so the states one Merkel will be replaced by the um, I want a fourth term and I am the, the, the safe pair of hands but she cannot present herself as a safe pair of hands uh, as easily as she could have before the attacks in Berlin. And that is, uh, this throws her re-election campaign into complete disarray because if Angela Merkel becomes a security liability for the CDU, which has always been the law and order party, the CDU has nothing else. The senior CDU people have always said uh, Merkel has been such a, such, a, such a reliable vote winner and election winner that uh, we don't actually have anyone else or anything else. And that uh, is the disastrous situation. It was always going to be a it was always going to be a difficult election. There are going to be more parties competing for, uh, for for votes and there's going to be a very complicated coalition situation next year because of a crowded new parliament. So Angela Merkel was always, the, 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 the thinking until now was she could win the election but might struggle to find coalition partners. Now even that, uh, whether or not you could win the election with Angela Merkel, will of course be upmost in people's minds. I think most Germans are still sensible. I think they're, they've, they see her as the best of a bad lot and the, the safest pair of hands Germany has had. But she has new challenges in, within her own party. And as I said, this far-right party chiseling away at confidence um, from from the right, from the extreme right, an hour after the attack, calling uh, the 12 
dead in Berlin, Merkel's dead, um, which caused huge upset and outrage. But this notion of targeted provocation, this is new to German politics, and it remains to be seen where the Germany's mainstream, and particularly Angela Merkel, are able to fend it off. Thank you very much, Derek. Hi, my name's Hugh Linehan, and I just wanted to take a few seconds to tell you about the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. Every week I'm joined by our own expert analysts along with elected politicians and people who just have interesting political ideas. If you're interested in how the system works, how it could be made better, and what effects politics really has on your life, join me every Wednesday for Inside Politics. You can find it on irishtimes.com podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. Last week, Donald Trump announced his nominee for US Ambassador to Israel, David Friedman. He's a bankruptcy lawyer who's been closely involved in the Trump election and is well known in the US Jewish circles for his advocacy of far-right positions on Israel. He's opposed to long-standing US positions, backs illegal settlements, opposes a two-state solution, and he wants to move the US embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. Mark Weiss, how's this nomination been greeted by Israelis? This is pretty strong stuff. Friedman's even to the right of Benjamin Netanyahu. Exactly. Um, he's certainly a, a different mode than any other U.S. ambassador to Israel in the past. Uh, we've had many Jewish uh, ambassadors, uh, and of course all of them pro-Israel, reflecting Washington's traditionally very close ties with Israel. But we've never had an ambassador that has been so directly uh, um, linked with uh, the right wing of Israel. He is an Orthodox Jew, speaks Hebrew. Um, he has made uh, very public statements in favor of Jewish settlements. He's been involved in uh, fundraising in the U.S. for uh, a settlement uh, of Bet El just outside Jerusalem. And he's very clearly, um, if you place him on the Israeli political map, as you said, clearly on the right. Now, what is the significance of moving the embassy to to uh, Jerusalem. This is a, it's a very toxic issue there, isn't it? It has, and we've had um, numerous uh, American politicians in the past pledging uh, to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Of course, when they get into power, they change their tune, and all of them have signed um, every six months a waiver uh, from moving the embassy, um, claiming that this would not be in, America, in, in American national interest. However, it seems all the indications are uh, certainly that Donald Trump uh, is serious about this, and he may become the first president to actually uh, push this through. Of course, this would um, cause uh, great anger in the Palestinian circles, and indeed the entire Muslim world, uh, and the Arab world, of course. Jerusalem issue is probably the most sensitive uh, between Israel and the Palestinians, um, and will only be decided, of course, um, as part of an overall framework of bilateral negotiations between the two sides. Uh, the Palestinians would argue that a decision by the U.S. to move the embassy to Jerusalem would uh, prejudice this and would be uh, an indication that the U.S. Um, supports Israeli sovereignty uh, over, um, over Jerusalem as a whole. Although, of course, I'm sure the U.S. would argue that uh, moving the embassy does not imply uh, U.S. support for Israeli sovereignty or would prejudice uh, future talks. And there's a considerable degree of international uh, solidarity with uh, the position that Tel Aviv must remain the capital until, t until final talks. The entire international community um, has, has um, taken the position that um, until 
the the borders of Jerusalem are um, decided between the parties, then all the embassies uh, for the moment will remain in Tel Aviv. That's why a move by America would be such a dramatic move. Um, It would change uh, the status quo that's existed, um, uh, well, forever, in fact. Um, It would remain to be seen if other countries would follow such a dramatic uh, um, move, if indeed it takes place. Of course, that remains to be seen. Now, the Israeli press has started to pick sites for a possible embassy. There are a number of sites in Jerusalem, um, all in the south of Jerusalem, around, in or around the neighborhoods of Talpiot and Anana. Or, or of course, um, the Americans could. I was speaking last night to uh, a leading uh, Republican uh, um, campaigner who lives in Israel. Uh, he said the simplest move would be to just convert the U.S. consulate uh, the consulate has two buildings here in Jerusalem, one in West Jerusalem, one on the border between West and East Jerusalem, simply just to convert the existing buildings into an embassy. He said it's very simple, and he he believes Trump will go ahead and do it. Now, the American government has for some time supported the idea of a two-state solution in the region, uh, Israel and, and, and Palestine. Uh, Friedman has opposed two-state solution, and there's also an attempt by the Americans over the last years to be seen as an honest broker for talks, um, trying to position themselves somewhere between the Palestinians and and the Israelis. Both of those fairly important strategic positions would seem to be blown out of the water by by Friedman's point. That's why the victory of Donald Trump um, could create a whole new ballgame here. Uh, there's certainly excitement on the right wing within uh, Israel that uh, we're talking now about... uh, nothing less than a new historical reality. The leader of the, uh, the Jewish Home Party, the right-wing party within the coalition, which is to the right of the Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud, he's already uh, said quite clearly that um, the election of Trump uh, creates a situation when we can now take off the political agenda, um, this two-state solution. And he's even gone further, and he, he is proposing that Israeli policy now uh, is openly to annex part of the West Bank. The West Bank is divided at the moment into areas that are uh, under Israeli control, under Palestinian control, and Area B, which is in the middle, which is under Palestinian control, but Israeli security control. Uh, So Naftali Bennett, the leader of the Jewish Home, is now proposing that Israel push for annexation of the Area C. That's basically all all the Jewish settlements. Um, um, and he wants this to be Israeli policy, and he wants the Prime Minister Netanyahu to push for this when he meets with Donald Trump. Um, The Prime Minister, of course, is not yet committed to that. He's still speaking, at least publicly, in favor of a two-state solution. Um, But it might be uh, now time for change as far as uh, certainly the right in Israel, and not only on the Palestinian issue. Um, Even more important, I think, for the Prime Minister is the question of the Iran nuclear deal, which, as you remember, was pushed through um, by President Obama uh, at the head of the international negotiators with Iran. Israel opposed this. Prime Minister Netanyahu opposed this bitterly. Um, Israel now sees an opportunity um, to uh, change this. And Donald Trump has also spoken very clearly against the Iran nuclear deal. He said it was the worst deal America's ever signed. So certainly Netanyahu will be seeing this as a top priority. And tell me, is there any clarity about the role that was speculated for for Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law? Trump's Jewish son-in-law, very pro-Israel, 
again um, linked with uh, a number of philanthropic um, um, pro-Israel uh, charities. Um, he is just another of the team close to Trump that indicates, uh, as far as Israeli leadership is, is concerned, that a significant change has taken place in the Washington elite, um, probably beyond the wildest dreams of the Israeli right wing, and now um, will be an opportunity to create a, a new, historical, uh, op- uh, new historical relationship between Washington uh, and Israel, uh, and particularly Israel's looking, I think, or the right wing in Israel is looking for a hands-off approach, that it won't be, uh, as we've seen in the past, of Israel um, carrying out policies that's condemned by the international community led by Washington. We're now looking to the possibility that um, the uh, new administration will coordinate possible um, actions with the Netanyahu government, and no longer will we be, con- will be hearing almost every week condemnation from Washington of what Israel is doing or contemplating. But that very reality uh, is scaring the living daylights out of Palestinians. How, how have they responded? Everyone, I think, at the moment is, is in the um, wait-and-see mode. It's still early days, of course. We don't know exactly what Trump and his new administration will do. Uh, the Palestinians are certainly worried. They're worried uh, that, uh, first of all, the embassy will be moved to Jerusalem, that, second of all, um, the, not only will Washington stop opposing settlements, they may give the green light for settlements. Uh, Israel Defense Minister Viktor Lieberman wants to uh, renew the pledge uh, of uh, the late President, uh, the President Bush made to uh, uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon that gave Israel the green light to build within the existing large settlements. He wants that um, again on the table. Um, and again, the Prime Minister has to decide what exactly Israeli policy will be vis-a-vis the new uh, administration. And, of course, uh, uh, there's the very interesting question of Syria as well. Israel has uh, very important interests uh, uh, on how the Syrian um, uh, civil war plays out. The last thing Israel wants is Iranian and Hezbollah influence uh, in Syria, um, and particularly on the Golan Heights. And Israel will definitely be pressuring the new Trump administration that uh, if some kind of deal is struck between uh, Washington and Moscow, then Israeli interests, uh, as I've just noted, will be, will be taken into consideration. So it's all early stages now. There's contacts between uh, security officials and intelligence officials um, between, uh, in the new Trump administration and the Netanyahu government. And so far, as far as Israel is concerned, uh, the signs are very promising. Thank you very much, Mark. And finally, the recent visit by a New York Times journalist to a remote Alaskan village to investigate the plight of polar bears has brought back memories of a trip I made shortly after I arrived in the US as this paper's correspondent. Go as far from Washington, D.C. as possibly you can, the editor told me, and I did. In the summer and autumn, when the days still outlast the nights, there are polar bears everywhere. They lounge on the sand beside the sea, stroll the beach with cubs, play in the surf, forage on the fringes of the village. At night, the bears steal into town, making it dangerous to walk around without a firearm or bear spray. They leave only reluctantly, chased off by a polar bear patrol with firecracker shells and spotlights. I visited Kaktovik in 2001, a tiny Alaskan village of 60 homes, 250 miles north of the Arctic Circle. 
100 miles north of the village of North Pole. Its population, 260, has not changed. The village is pressed up against the Beaufort Sea on a strip of tundra that links it to the north slope of the mighty Brooks Range of Mountains. It was also visited yearly, and briefly then, by up to 20 or 30 polar bears, usually after a whale kill. They would pick clean the bones after villagers had finished with the carcasses and stored meat for the winter. I tried the blubber after dinner at the tiny Waldo Arms Hotel. It had a rubbery consistency and a taste that I would not recommend, but it stores well. Today, the lumbering bear visitors, climate refugees, number 80 or more, and their visits are extended. They're bolder, too. Needs must. Global warming is transforming the ecology of the North Pole region. Massive tankers now pass along this once ice-bound coast for up to six months of the year. A shortcut from China. The ice flows along the coast have receded from Kaktovik's Barter Island, and in the summer to many miles offshore, where seals, the bear's staple diet, are few and far between, and the distance to land is a long swim, even for a polar bear. As Steve Armstrong, chief scientist for Polar Bears International, a conservation organisation, told the New York Times the other day, as the sea ice goes, so goes the polar bear. The Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet, and the ice cover is retreating at a pace that even the climate scientists who predicted the decline first find startling. In November, the extent of Arctic sea ice was lower than ever recorded for that month. Over five days in mid-November, the ice cover lost more than 19,000 square miles. When I visited Kaktovik, it was to report on what environmental activists feared would be the arrival of big oil exploration. A prospect, mostly the money and jobs, the villagers viewed with some enthusiasm as it happened. It hasn't happened yet, despite the best efforts of conservative politicians in Washington. But today, another environmental tragedy is creeping up on this village. Is it witnessing, in the annual polar bear visitation, the early signs of the demise of this species? The village is the only human settlement in the vast national wilderness park known as Anwar, 1.9 million acre roadless refuge the size of Ireland in northeast Alaska. It's south of the Beaufort Sea, between the Canadian border and the huge oil fields of Prudhoe Bay. Known by many as the North's Serengeti, it's home to great porcupine caribou herd, which migrates annually across the Brooks Range to calve on its northern slopes. In winter, it is the barren, icy home of polar bears, musk ox and hibernating Arctic foxes. In summer, a lush green land, it plays host to millions of migrating birds. It's here that Canada's snow geese come from nesting grounds 430 miles to the northeast on Banks Island to feed on the rich cotton grass that will sustain them on their marathon flight to California. 180 bird species have been recorded here and 36 land mammal species. And man's lone permanent footprint today is the Eskimo Inupiat village of Kaktovik. The villagers survive on a subsistence of hunting caribou, musk ox and doll sheep and on their quota of three whales a year. Their existence is guaranteed by subsidies from Alaska's oil wealth. Polar bears are in trouble, and experts have predicted that the numbers will decrease with continued sea ice loss. A 2015 assessment for the International Union for Conservation of Nature's Red List projected a reduction of more than 30% in their numbers by 2050, not least those in the population in the Beaufort Sea. Researchers say the proportion of them choosing to spend time ashore has trebled. Bears are going into the winter skinnier and in poorer condition. They're also smaller and older, and younger bears are less likely to survive than in the past. 
I remember meeting in Kaktovik a wilderness guide and hunter, Robert Thompson. No Jack London, he, no dog sleds, but a high-powered rifle and a snowmobile. He was then one of the few opposed to the oil development. Today he serves the tourists who come in increasing numbers to observe the bears, a new source of income for the village. He's watched the bear numbers grow. They never used to come into town, or maybe occasionally, like once a year or so, Thompson told the New York Times. Now they're in town every night. They're no threat to humans now, but if their food supplies continue to dwindle, the relationship with man may change. Pickings from a few whale carcasses are no real alternative to the seals they once fed on. As global warming accelerates and the pack ice recedes, the future for the bears does not look good. Quote, the bears are not here because we hunt whales, Thompson says. They're here because their habitat has gone away and it's several hundred miles of open water out there. Kaktovik may be witnessing the sad beginning of the end of this wonderful species. Thanks to Derek Scully and Mark Weiss, to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan, and our producer Jennifer Ryan. I'm Patrick Smith, wishing all our listeners a happy Christmas. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher, or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.